0: Chapter 3 of The Economic Consequences of the Peace by John Maynard Keynes. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Graham Macmillan. Chapter 3 The Conference. In Chapters 4 and 5, I shall study in some detail the economic and financial provisions of the Treaty of Peace with Germany. But it will be easier to appreciate the true origin of many of these terms if we examine here some of the personal factors which influenced their preparation in attempting this task i touch inevitably questions of motive on which spectators are liable to error and are not entitled to take on themselves the responsibilities of final judgment yet if i seem in this chapter to assume sometimes the liberties which are habitual to historians but which in spite of the greater knowledge with which we speak we generally hesitate to assume toward contemporaries let the reader excuse me when he remembers how greatly if it is to understand its destiny the world needs light even if it is partial and uncertain on the complex struggle of human will and purpose not yet finished which concentrated in the persons of four individuals in a manner never paralleled made them in the first months of nineteen nineteen the microcosm of mankind in those parts of the treaty with which i am here concerned the lead was taken by the french in the sense that it was generally they who made in the first instance the most definite and the most extreme proposals this was partly a matter of tactics when the final result is expected to be a compromise it is often prudent to start from an extreme position and the french anticipated at the outset like most other persons a double process of compromise first of all to suit the ideas of all their allies and associates and secondly in the course of the peace conference proper with the germans themselves these tactics were justified by the event clemenceau gained a reputation for moderation with his colleagues in council by sometimes throwing over with an air of intellectual impartiality the more extreme proposals of his ministers and much went through where the american and british critics were naturally a little ignorant of the true point at issue or where too persistent criticism by france's allies put them in a position which they felt as invidious of always appearing to take the enemy's part and to argue his case where therefore british and american interests were not seriously involved their criticism grew slack and some provisions were thus passed which the french themselves did not take very seriously and for which the eleventh-hour decision to allow no discussion with the Germans removed the opportunity of remedy. But apart from tactics, the French had a policy. Although Clemenceau might curtly abandon the claims of a klotz, or a lucheur, or close his eyes with an air of fatigue when French interests were no longer involved in the discussion, he knew which points were vital, and these he abated little. In so far as the main economic lines of the treaty represent an intellectual idea, it is the idea of France and of Clemenceau. Clemenceau was by far the most eminent member of the Council of Four, and he had taken the measure of his colleagues. He alone both had an idea, and had considered it in all its consequences. His age, his character, his wit, and his appearance joined to give him objectivity, and a defined outline in an environment of confusion. One might despise Clemenceau or dislike him, but only take a different view as to the nature of civilized man, or indulge at least a different hope. The figure and bearing of Clemenceau are universally familiar— At the Council of Four he wore a square-tailed coat of very good, thick black broadcloth, and on his hands, which were never uncovered, grey-suede gloves. His boots were of thick black leather, very good, but of a country style, and sometimes fastened in front, curiously, by a buckle instead of laces. His seat in the room in the President's house, where the regular meetings of the Council of Four were held, as distinguished from their private and unattended conferences in a smaller chamber below, was on a square brocaded chair in the middle of the semicircle, facing the fireplace, with Signor Orlando on his left, the President next by the fireplace, and the Prime Minister opposite on the other side of the fireplace on his right. He carried no papers and no portfolio, and was unattended by any personal secretary, though several French ministers and officials appropriate to the particular matter in hand would be present round him. His walk, his hand, and his voice were not lacking in vigour, but he bore nevertheless, especially after the attempt upon him, The aspect of a very old man conserving his strength for important occasions he spoke seldom leaving the initial statement of the french case to his ministers or officials he closed his eyes often and sat back in his chair with an impassive face of parchment his gray gloved hands clasped in front of him a short sentence decisive or cynical was generally sufficient a question an unqualified abandonment of his ministers whose face would not be saved or a display of obstinacy reinforced by a few words in a piquantly delivered English. But speech and passion were not lacking when they were wanted, and the sudden outburst of words, often followed by a fit of deep coughing from the chest, produced their impression rather by force and surprise than by persuasion. Not infrequently Mr. Lloyd George, after delivering a speech in English, would, during the period of its interpretation into French, cross the hearth-rug to the president to reinforce his case by some ad hominem argument in private conversation or to sound the ground for a compromise, and this would sometimes be the signal for a general upheaval and disorder. The president's advisers would press round him. A moment later, the British experts would dribble across to learn the result, or see that all was well, and next the French would be there, a little suspicious lest the others were arranging something behind them, until all the room were on their feet, and conversation was general in both languages. My last and most vivid impression is of such a scene the president and the prime minister as the centre of a surging mob and a babel of sound a welter of eager impromptu compromises and counter-compromises all sound and fury signifying nothing on what was an unreal question anyhow the great issues of the morning's meeting forgotten and neglected and clemenceau silent and aloof in the outskirts for nothing which touched the security of france was forward throned in his gray gloves on the brocade chair dry in soul and empty of hope very old and tired but surveying the scene with a cynical and almost impish air. And when at last silence was restored, and the company had returned to their places, it was to discover that he had disappeared. He felt about France what Pericles felt of Athens. Unique value in her, nothing else mattering, but his theory of politics was Bismarck's. He had one illusion, France, and one disillusion, mankind, including Frenchmen, and his colleagues not least. His principles for the peace can be expressed simply. In the first place, he was a foremost believer in the view of German psychology, that the German understands and can understand nothing but intimidation, and that he is without generosity or remorse in negotiation, that there is no advantage he will not take of you, and no extent to which he will not demean himself for profit, that he is without honor, pride, or mercy. Therefore, you must never negotiate with a German or conciliate him. You must dictate to him. On no other terms will he respect you, or will you prevent him from cheating you, But it is doubtful how far he thought these characteristics peculiar to germany or whether his candid view of some other nations was fundamentally different his philosophy had therefore no place for sentimentality in international relations nations are real things of whom you love one and feel for the rest indifference or hatred the glory of the nation you love is a desirable end but generally to be obtained at your neighbor's expense the politics of power are inevitable and there is nothing very new to learn about this war or the end it was fought for England had destroyed, as in each preceding century, a trade rival. A mighty chapter had been closed in the secular struggle between the glories of Germany and of France. Prudence required some measure of lip service to the ideals of foolish Americans and hypocritical Englishmen, but it would be stupid to believe that there is much room in the world, as it really is, for such affairs as the League of Nations, or any sense in the principle of self-determination, except as an ingenious formula for rearranging the balance of power in one's own interests. These, however, are generalities. In tracing the practical details of the peace, which he thought necessary for the power and the security of France, we must go back to the historical causes which had operated during his lifetime. Before the Franco-German War, the populations of France and Germany were approximately equal, but the coal and iron and shipping of Germany were in their infancy, and the wealth of France was greatly superior. Even after the loss of Alsace-Lorraine, there was no great discrepancy between the real resources of the two countries. But in the intervening period, the relative position had changed completely. By 1914, the population of Germany was nearly 70% in excess of that of France. She had become one of the first manufacturing and trading nations of the world. Her technical skill and her means for the production of future wealth were unequaled. France, on the other hand, had a stationary or declining population, and relatively to others, had fallen seriously behind in wealth and in the power to produce it. In spite, therefore, of France's victorious issue from the present struggle, with the aid in this time of England and America, her future position remained precarious in the eyes of one who took the view that European civil war is to be regarded as a normal, or at least a recurrent, state of affairs for the future, and that the sort of conflicts between organized great powers, which have occupied the past hundred years, will also engage the next. According to this vision of the future, European history is to be a perpetual prize fight, of which France has won this round, but of which this round is certainly not the last. From the belief that essentially the old order does not change, being based on human nature, which is always the same, and from a consequent skepticism of all that class of doctrine which the League of Nations stands for, the policy of France and of Clemenceau followed logically. For a piece of magnanimity, or of fair and equal treatment, based on such ideology as the 14 points of the president, could only have the effect of shortening the interval of Germany's recovery, and hastening the day when she will once again hurl at france her greater numbers and her superior resources and technical skill hence the necessity of guarantees and each guarantee that was taken by increasing irritation and thus the probability of a subsequent revanche by germany made necessary yet further provisions to crush thus as soon as this view of the world is adopted and the other discarded a demand for a carthaginian peace is inevitable to the full extent of the momentary power to impose it for Clemenceau made no pretense of considering himself bound by the 14 points, and left chiefly to others such concoctions as were necessary from time to time, to save the scruples, or the face, of the President. So far as possible, therefore, it was the policy of France to set the clock back, and to undo what, since 1870, the progress of Germany had accomplished. By loss of territory, and other measures, her population was to be curtailed, but chiefly the economic system, upon which she depended for her new strength, the vast fabric built upon iron, coal, and transport must be destroyed. If France could seize, even in part, what Germany was compelled to drop, the inequality of strength between the two rivals for European hegemony might be remedied for many generations. Hence sprang those cumulative provisions for the destruction of highly organized economic life, which we shall examine in the next chapter. This is the policy of an old man, whose most vivid impressions and most lively imagination are of the past and not of the future. He sees the issue in terms of France and Germany, not of humanity and of European civilization struggling forwards to a new order. The war has bitten into his consciousness somewhat differently from ours, and he neither expects nor hopes that we are at the threshold of a new age. It happens, however, that it is not only an ideal question that is at issue, My purpose in this book is to show that the Carthaginian peace is not practically right or possible. Although the school of thought from which it springs is aware of the economic factor, it overlooks nevertheless the deeper economic tendencies which are to govern the future. The clock cannot be set back. You cannot restore Central Europe to 1870 without setting up such strains in the European structure and letting loose such human and spiritual forces as pushing beyond frontiers and races will overwhelm not only you and your guarantees but your institutions and the existing order of your society by what ledger domain was this policy substituted for the fourteen points and how did the president come to accept it the answer to these questions is difficult and depends on elements of character and psychology and on the subtle influence of surroundings which are hard to detect and harder still to describe but if ever the action of a single individual matters the collapse of the President has been one of the most decisive moral events of history, and I must make an attempt to explain it. What a place the President held in the hearts and hopes of the world when he sailed to us in the George Washington. What a great man came to Europe in those early days of our victory. In November 1918, the armies of Folk and the words of Wilson had brought us sudden escape from what was swallowing up all we cared for. The condition seemed favorable beyond any expectation the victory was so complete that fear need play no part in the settlement. The enemy had laid down his arms in reliance on a solemn compact as to the general character of the peace, the terms of which seemed to assure a settlement of justice and magnanimity and a fair hope for a restoration of the broken current of life. To make assurance certain, the president was coming himself to set the seal on his work. When President Wilson left Washington, he enjoyed a prestige and a moral influence throughout the world unequaled in history. His bold and measured words carried to the peoples of Europe above and beyond the voices of their own politicians. The enemy peoples trusted him to carry out the compact he had made with them. And the allied peoples acknowledged him not as a victor only, but almost as a prophet. In addition to this moral influence, the realities of power were in his hands. The American armies were at the height of their numbers discipline and equipment europe was in complete dependence on the food supplies of the united states and financially she was even more absolutely at their mercy europe not only already owed the united states more than she could pay but only a large measure of further assistance could save her from starvation and bankruptcy never had a philosopher held such weapons wherewith to bind the princes of this world how the crowds of the european capitals pressed about the carriage of the president with what curiosity anxiety and hope we sought a glimpse of the features and bearing of the man of destiny who coming from the west was to bring healing to the wounds of the ancient parent of his civilization and lay for us the foundations of the future the disillusionment was so complete that some of those who had trusted most hardly dared speak of it could it be true they asked of those who returned from paris was the treaty really as bad as it seemed what had happened to the president what weakness or what misfortune had led to so extraordinary so unlooked for a betrayal yet the causes were very ordinary and human the president was not a hero or a prophet he was not even a philosopher but a generously intentioned man with many of the weaknesses of other human beings and lacking that dominating intellectual equipment which would have been necessary to cope with the subtle and dangerous spellbinders whom a tremendous clash of forces and personalities had brought to the top as triumphant masters in the swift game of give and take face to face in council a game of which he had no experience at all we had indeed quite a wrong idea of the president we knew him to be solitary and aloof and believed him very strong-willed and obstinate we did not figure him as a man of detail but the clearness with which he had taken hold of certain main ideas would we thought in combination with his tenacity enable him to sweep through cobwebs besides these qualities he would have the objectivity, the cultivation, and the wide knowledge of the student. The great distinction of language, which had marked his famous notes, seemed to indicate a man of lofty and powerful imagination. His portraits indicated a fine presence and a commanding delivery. With all this he had attained and held with increasing authority the first position in a country where the arts of the politician are not neglected all of which without expecting the impossible seemed a fine combination of qualities for the matter in hand the first impression of mr wilson at close quarters was to impair some but not all of these illusions his head and features were finely cut and exactly like his photographs and the muscles of his neck and the carriage of his head were distinguished but like odysseus the president looked wiser when he was seated and his hands though capable and fairly strong were wanting in sensitiveness and finesse the first glance at the president suggested not only that whatever else he might be his temperament was not primarily that of the student or the scholar but that he had not much even of that culture of the world which marks m clemenceau and mr balfour as exquisitely cultivated gentlemen of their class and generation but more serious than this he was not only insensitive to his surroundings in the external sense he was not sensitive to his environment at all. What chance could such a man have against Mr. Lloyd George's unerring, almost medium-like sensibility to everyone immediately around him? To see the British Prime Minister watching the company, with six or seven senses not available to ordinary men, judging character, motive, and subconscious impulse, perceiving what each was thinking, and even what each was going to say next, and compounding with telepathic instinct the argument or appeal best suited to the vanity, weakness, or self-interest of his immediate auditor, was to realize that the poor president would be playing blind man's bluff in that party. Never could a man have stepped into the parlor a more perfect and predestined victim to the finished accomplishments of the Prime Minister. The old world was tough in wickedness, anyhow. The old world's heart of stone might blunt the sharpest blade of the bravest knight-errant. But this blind and deaf Don Quixote was entering a cavern where the swift and glittering blade was in the hands of the adversary. But if the president was not the philosopher king, what was he? After all, he was a man who had spent much of his life at a university. He was by no means a businessman or an ordinary party politician, but a man of force, personality, and importance. What then was his temperament? The clue, once found, was illuminating. The president was like a nonconformist minister, perhaps a Presbyterian. His thought and his temperament were essentially theological, not intellectual, with all the strength and the weakness of that manner of thought, feeling, and expression. It is a type of which there are not now in England and Scotland such magnificent specimens as formerly, but this description, nevertheless, will give the ordinary Englishman the distinctest impression of the President. With this picture of him in mind, we can return to the actual course of events. The President's program for the world, as set forth in his speeches and his notes, had displayed a spirit and a purpose so admirable that the last desire of his sympathizers was to criticize details the details they felt were quite rightly not filled in at present but would be in due course it was commonly believed at the commencement of the paris conference that the president had thought out with the aid of a large body of advisers a comprehensive scheme not only for the league of nations but for the embodiment of the fourteen points in an actual treaty of peace But in fact, the president had thought out nothing. When it came to practice, his ideas were nebulous and incomplete. He had no plan, no scheme, no constructive ideas whatever for clothing with the flesh of life the commandments which he had thundered from the White House. He could have preached a sermon on any of them, or have addressed a stately prayer to the Almighty for their fulfillment. But he could not frame their complete application to the actual state of Europe. He not only had no proposals in detail but he was in many respects, perhaps inevitably, ill-informed as to European conditions. And not only was he ill-informed, that was true of Mr. Lloyd George also, but his mind was slow and unadaptable. The President's slowness amongst the Europeans was noteworthy. He could not, all in a minute, take in what the rest were saying, size up the situation with a glance, frame a reply, and meet the case by a slight change of ground and he was liable, therefore, to defeat by the mere swiftness, apprehension, and agility of a Lloyd George. There can seldom have been a statesman of the first rank more incompetent than the President in the agilities of the Council chamber. A moment often arrives when substantial victory is yours if by some slight appearance of a concession you can save the face of the opposition or conciliate them by a restatement of your proposal helpful to them and not injurious to anything essential to yourself. The president was not equipped with this simple and usual artfulness. His mind was too slow and unresourceful to be ready with any alternatives. The president was capable of digging his toes in and refusing to budge, as he did over Fiumi. But he had no other mode of defense, and it needed as a rule but little maneuvering by his opponents to prevent matters from coming to such a head until it was too late. By pleasantness and an appearance of conciliation, the president would be maneuvered off his ground, would miss the moment for digging his toes in and before he knew where he had been got to it was too late besides it is impossible month after month in intimate and ostensibly friendly converse between close associates to be digging the toes in all the time victory would only have been possible to one who had always a sufficiently lively apprehension of the position as a whole to reserve his fire and know for certain the rare exact moments for decisive action and for that The President was far too slow-minded and bewildered. He did not remedy these defects by seeking aid from the collective wisdom of his lieutenants. He had gathered round him for the economic chapters of the treaty a very able group of businessmen, but they were inexperienced in public affairs, and knew, with one or two exceptions, as little of Europe as he did, and they were only called in irregularly as he might need them for a particular purpose. Thus the aloofness which had been found effective in Washington was maintained and the abnormal reserve of his nature did not allow near him any one who aspired to moral equality or the continuous exercise of influence his fellow plenipotentiaries were dummies and even the trusted colonel house with vastly more knowledge of man and of europe than the president from whose sensitiveness the president's dullness had gained so much fell into the background as time went on all this was encouraged by his colleagues on the council of four who by the break-up of the council of ten completed the isolation which the president's own temperament had initiated. Thus, day after day, and week after week, he allowed himself to be closeted, unsupported, unadvised, and alone, with men much sharper than himself, in situations of supreme difficulty, where he needed for success every description of resource, fertility, and knowledge. He allowed himself to be drugged by their atmosphere, to discuss on the basis of their plans and of their data, and to be led along their paths these and other various causes combined to produce the following situation the reader must remember that the processes which are here compressed into a few pages took place slowly gradually insidiously over a period of about five months as the president had thought nothing out the council was generally working on the basis of a french or a british draft he had to take up therefore a persistent attitude of obstruction criticism and negation if the draft was to become at all in line with his own ideas and purpose. If he was met on some points with apparent generosity, for there was always a safe margin of quite preposterous suggestions which no one took seriously, it was difficult for him not to yield on others. Compromise was inevitable, and never to compromise on the essential, very difficult. Besides, he was soon made to appear to be taking the German part, and laid himself open to the suggestion, to which he was foolishly and unfortunately sensitive of being pro-German. After a display of much principle and dignity in the early days of the Council of Ten, he discovered that there were certain very important points in the program of his French, British, or Italian colleague, as the case might be, of which he was incapable of securing the surrender by the methods of secret diplomacy. What then was he to do in the last resort? He could let the conference drag on an endless length by the exercise of sheer obstinacy. He could break it up and return to America in a rage, with nothing settled or he could attempt an appeal to the world over the heads of the conference these were wretched alternatives against each of which a great deal could be said they were also very risky especially for a politician the president's mistaken policy over the congressional election had weakened his personal position in his own country and it was by no means certain that the american public would support him in a position of intransigency it would mean a campaign in which the issues would be clouded by every sort of personal and party consideration and who could say if right would triumph in a struggle which would certainly not be decided on its merits? Besides, any open rupture with his colleagues would certainly bring upon his head the blind passions of anti-German resentment, with which the public of all allied countries were still inspired. They would not listen to his arguments. They would not be cool enough to treat the issue as one of international morality, or of the right governance of Europe. The cry would simply be that, for various sinister and selfish reasons, the President wished to let the Hun off. The almost unanimous voice of the French and British press could be anticipated. Thus, if he threw down the gauge publicly, he might be defeated. And if he were defeated, would not the final peace be far worse than if he were to retain his prestige and endeavor to make it as good as the limiting conditions of European politics would allow him? But above all, if he were defeated, would he not lose the League of Nations, And was not this, after all, by far the most important issue for the future happiness of the world? The treaty would be altered and softened by time. Much in it, which now seemed so vital, would become trifling, and much which was impracticable would, for that very reason, never happen. But the League, even in an imperfect form, was permanent. It was the first commencement of a new principle in the government of the world. Truth and justice in international relations could not be established in a few months. They must be borne in due course by the slow gestation of the League. Clemenceau had been clever enough to let it be seen that he would swallow the League at a price. At the crisis of his fortunes, the President was a lonely man. Caught up in the toils of the old world, he stood in great need of sympathy, of moral support, of the enthusiasm of the masses. But buried in the conference, stifled in the hot and poisoned atmosphere of Paris, no echo reached him from the outer world, and no throb of passion, sympathy, or encouragement from his silent constituents in all countries. He felt that the blaze of popularity which had greeted his arrival in Europe was already dimmed. The Paris press jeered at him openly. His political opponents at home were taking advantage of his absence to create an atmosphere against him. England was cold, critical, and unresponsive. HE HAD SO FORMED HIS ENTOURAGE THAT HE DID NOT RECEIVE THROUGH PRIVATE CHANNELS THE CURRENT OF FAITH AND ENTHUSIASM OF WHICH THE PUBLIC SOURCES SEEMED dammed UP. HE NEEDED, BUT LACKED, THE ADDED STRENGTH OF COLLECTIVE FAITH. THE GERMAN TERROR STILL OVERHUNG US, AND EVEN THE SYMPATHETIC PUBLIC WAS VERY CAUTIOUS. THE ENEMY MUST NOT BE ENCOURAGED. OUR FRIENDS MUST BE SUPPORTED. THIS WAS NOT THE TIME FOR DISCORD OR AGITATIONS. THE PRESIDENT MUST BE TRUSTED TO DO HIS BEST and in this draft the flower of the president's faith withered and dried up. Thus it came to pass that the president countermanded the George Washington, which in a moment of well-founded rage he had ordered to be in readiness to carry him from the treacherous halls of Paris back to the seat of his authority, where he could have felt himself again. But as soon, alas, as he had taken the road of compromise, the defects already indicated of his temperament and of his equipment were fatally apparent. He could take the high line, He could practice obstinacy. He could write notes from Sinai or Olympus. He could remain unapproachable in the White House, or even in the Council of Ten, and be safe. But if he once stepped down to the intimate equality of the four, the game was evidently up. Now it is that what I have called his theological or Presbyterian temperament became dangerous. Having decided that some concessions were unavoidable, he might have sought by firmness and address and the use of the financial power of the United States to secure as much as he could of the substance, even at some sacrifice of the letter. But the President was not capable of so clear an understanding with himself as this implied. He was too conscientious. Although compromises were now necessary, he remained a man of principle, and the 14 points a contract absolutely binding upon him. He would do nothing that was not honorable. He would do nothing that was not just and right. He would do nothing that was contrary to his great profession of faith thus without any abatement of the verbal inspiration of the fourteen points they became a document for gloss and interpretation and for all the intellectual apparatus of self-deception by which i dare say the president's forefathers had persuaded themselves that the course they thought it necessary to take was consistent with every syllable of the pentateuch the president's attitude to his colleagues had now become i want to meet you so far as i can i see your difficulties and i should like to be able to agree to what you propose but i can do nothing that is not just and right and you must first of all show me that what you want does really fall within the words of the pronouncements which are binding on me then began the weaving of that web of sophistry and jesuitical exegesis that was finally to clothe with insincerity the language and substance of the whole treaty the word was issued to the witches of all paris Fair is foul, and foul is fair. Hover through the fog and filthy air. The subtlest sophisters and most hypocritical draftsmen were set to work, and produced many ingenious exercises, which might have deceived for more than an hour a cleverer man than the president. Thus, instead of saying that German Austria is prohibited from uniting with Germany, except by leave of France, which would be inconsistent with the principle of self-determination, the treaty, with delicate draftsmanship, states that Germany acknowledges and will respect strictly the independence of Austria within the frontiers which may be fixed in a treaty between that state and the principal allied and associated powers. She agrees that this independence shall be inalienable except with the consent of the Council of the League of Nations. Which sounds, but is not, quite different. And who knows but that the President forgot that another part of the treaty provides that for this purpose the Council of the League must be unanimous. Instead of giving Danzig to Poland, the treaty establishes Danzig as a free city, but includes this free city within the Polish customs frontier, entrusts to Poland the control of the river and railway system, and provides that the Polish government shall undertake the conduct of the foreign relations of the free city of Danzig, as well as the diplomatic protection of citizens of that city when abroad. In placing the river system of Germany under foreign control, The treaty speaks of declaring international those river systems which naturally provide more than one state with access to the sea, with or without transshipment from one vessel to another. Such instances could be multiplied. The honest and intelligible purpose of French policy, to limit the population of Germany and weaken her economic system, is clothed, for the president's sake, in the august language of freedom and international equality. But perhaps the most decisive moment in the disintegration of the president's moral position and the clouding of his mind was when at last, to the dismay of his advisers, he allowed himself to be persuaded that the expenditure of the Allied governments on pensions and separation allowances could be fairly regarded as damage done to the civilian population of the Allied and associated powers by German aggression, by land, by sea, and from the air, in a sense in which the other expenses of the war could not be so regarded. It was a long theological struggle, in which, after the rejection of many different arguments, the president finally capitulated before a masterpiece of the sophist's art. At last the work was finished, and the president's conscience was still intact. In spite of everything, I believe that his temperament allowed him to leave Paris a really sincere man, and it is probable that to this day he is genuinely convinced that the treaty contains practically nothing inconsistent with his former professions but the work was too complete, and to this was due the last tragic episode of the drama. The reply of Brockdorf rantzau inevitably took the line that Germany had laid down her arms on the basis of certain assurances, and that the treaty in many particulars was not consistent with these assurances. But this was exactly what the president could not admit. In the sweat of solitary contemplation, and with prayers to God, he had done nothing that was not just and right. For the president to admit that the German reply had force in it, was to destroy his self-respect and to disrupt the inner equipoise of his soul, and every instinct of his stubborn nature rose in self-protection. In the language of medical psychology, to suggest to the president that the treaty was an abandonment of his professions was to touch on the raw, a Freudian complex. It was a subject intolerable to discuss, and every subconscious instinct plotted to defeat its further exploration. Thus it was that Clemenceau brought to success what had seemed to be, a few months before, the extraordinary and impossible proposal that the Germans should not be heard. If only the president had not been so conscientious, if only he had not concealed from himself what he had been doing, even at the last moment he was in, a position to have recovered his lost ground and to have achieved some very considerable successes. But the president was set. His arms and legs had been spliced by the surgeons to a certain posture, and they must be broken again before they could be altered to his horror mr lloyd george desiring at the last moment all the moderation he dared discovered that he could not in five days persuade the president of error in what it had taken five months to prove to him to be just and right after all it was harder to de bamboozle this old presbyterian than it had been to bamboozle him for the former involved his belief in and respect for himself thus in the last act the president stood for stubbornness and a refusal of conciliations end of chapter 3 recording by graham mcmillan san diego california